0: Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast, with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we had a look at the Scandinavian colonization of the Orkney and Shetland Islands, collectively known as the Northern Isles, and the Hebrides and the Isle of Man, known together as the Southern Isles. We also talked about the Vikings arriving in Ireland. At first, they limited their activities on the Emerald Isle to plundering, pillaging and killing... But, after a few years, they started to establish permanent settlements along the coastline. The most important of these settlements was Dublin, a place that has remained central to Ireland ever since. Today, we'll focus on the Scandinavians in Ireland and how they became an integral part of the social and economic fabric of the island from their long forts along the coast. The Viking kings of Dublin would be a major power not only in Irish politics, but also play a role in developments across the Irish Sea in Anglo-Saxon lands. We'll end today with a look at the legendary Battle of Clontarf and why it wasn't the clear-cut clash between good Irish Christians fighting for their freedom against the pagan Scandinavian occupiers that later Irish religious and nationalist narratives would have us believe. Episode 4, Kings of Dublin In the year 850, the Scandinavians in Dublin found themselves facing a new and unpleasant phenomenon. An invading Viking fleet of around 140 longships showed up. Irish sources differentiate between the two groups of Scandinavians by calling the ones who were already in Dublin the fair or the white foreigners, whereas the new arrivals were the dark or the black foreigners. There are some modern-day theories, also known as guesses, Saying that the fair foreigners were Norwegians and the dark foreigners were mainly Danes. But why one would be described as fairer than the other beats me. One thing is clear, though the newcomers wreaked havoc on Ireland and long forts up and down the coast. They fought and defeated the Scandinavians who were already present on the island, and they even captured and destroyed Dublin. But their triumph was short lived, and soon enough the town was retaken by its inhabitants, who let the attackers have it. The fighting between the two groups of Scandinavians continued for a few years, to the delight of the petty kings of Ireland, obviously. The king of Tara used the situation to launch a war against the Scandinavians in Ireland, trying to get rid of the Viking pest once and for all. He was victorious in a series of battles, but his forces couldn't drive the Vikings out. The situation changed in 853, when a certain Olaf, identified by the Irish sources as a sea king and a son of the King of Lochlin came to Ireland and was named King of Dublin. In this context, Lochlin probably refers to the Scandinavian colony in the Southern Isles, that is the Hebrides in the Isle of Man, that we talked about last time. Olaf has been identified with various individuals who appear in old Scandinavian sources, one of them being Olaf the White, a descendant of none other than the legendary Viking hero Ragnar Lothbrok. But it's worthwhile to keep in mind that claimed descent from Ragnar Lothbrok was basically code for VIP in early medieval Scandinavian sources, and we shouldn't take it too seriously. It does, however, indicate the importance of the legend of Ragnar Lothbrok, and we'll talk more about that next time. Whoever his ancestors were, after becoming King of Dublin, Olaf left again to raid in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms across the Irish Sea. When he returned to Dublin in 856, or 857, we're not really sure, He was accompanied by two of his kinsmen. One of them was called Ivar and the other would die soon enough, either in a raid or over a dispute involving his sister-in-law. Either way, he won't live long enough to make it worth your while to discuss him any further. But Ivar was different. He became Olaf's co-regent in Dublin around 857, and he remained king of Dublin until his death in 873. Scandinavian tradition has identified this Ivar with Ivar the Boneless, a semi-legendary character who appears in the old sagas. According to this tradition, also Ivar was a son of Ragnar Lothbrok, making him yet another Viking VIP who bolstered his pedigree with descent from the famous sea king. The fragmentary annals of Ireland provide an alternative genealogy. According to this source, Ivar and Olaf were indeed brothers, but they were the sons of the king of the Southern Isles instead. Later, the descendants of Ivar called the Ui Mair by the Irish, would become an important political factor in Irish politics for generations to come. The peace between the two kings of Dublin horrified the Irish. Olaf and Ivar had unified the Scandinavians in Ireland and they once again directed their attention and destructive energy to the Irish neighbours. For the next 15 years or so, Olaf and Ivar used Dublin as their base of operations for a series of raids. To avoid the inconvenience of having to wage wars on several fronts, they formed alliances with several Irish leaders. Olaf may even have married daughters of one or several of the petty kings of Ireland in order to ensure such alliances. One day, they fought with that king against that one. The next day, their alliances were reshuffled, and yesterday's foe had become today's friend. The only constant was the warring and the pillaging. The main rival of the kings of Dublin was the High King, Neil, the one who drowned the Viking leader Thorgist at the end of the last episode. Milchuk realised that this united Viking front was a clear and present threat to his position and more generally to the petty kings of Ireland. Unfortunately for him, his rivals among these petty kings perceived him as just as big a threat as the Scandinavians. Olaf, managed to seal a deal with the O'Neills living in the north of Ireland, against Milchaknil, blocking any chance of a coordinated Irish attack against Dublin. When Milchaknil died in November 862, this led to a new round of Irish infighting, as rival claimants to the title of High King fought each other. In 865, Dublin Vikings joined the Great Heathen Army in attacking the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Ivar was was one of the leaders of that force and we'll return to his exploits in Wessex in a future episode. At the same time, Olaf went to Pictland in modern-day Scotland. Unfortunately, we don't know so much about that expedition, so there's currently no future episode on that in the cards. Without their leaders, the local Scandinavians in Dublin were in a tight spot, and were attacked by the Irish. But Olaf and Ivar eventually returned to Ireland to reassert their authority. Both Olaf and Ivar brought with them plenty of loot and slaves that they could sell on the thriving slave market in Dublin. As I mentioned last time, the Scandinavians brought serious international trade to Ireland. It hadn't been a part of Irish life, at least since the Romans left Britain. They also reintroduced the money economy to the island on a large scale. Allow me at this point to make a briefish detour and say a few words about slavery in general in Viking Age Scandinavia since Dublin was such an important slave market to the Vikings. Some historians have tried to claim that Scandinavian slavery was somehow different, not as bad, or or at the very least not as prevalent as elsewhere. But all archaeological evidence and written sources suggest that it was no better to be a slave in Scandinavia than in Rome or in Mississippi. Slaves in Scandinavia were property. They didn't have political rights and few other rights either. Sometimes, in pre-Christian times, slaves even followed their masters in death. Chieftains' graves in Scandinavia indicate this, from Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, so basically all over the place. The slaves were an integral and important factor in the local Scandinavian economy, and they worked as farm laborers, herds, servants, artisans, mistresses, and even trusted overseers. Prices for slaves were relatively low, which indicates a large supply. According to some estimates, as much as one-third of the population in Scandinavia was enslaved. Later laws from the Middle Ages, like the 11th and 12th centuries, suggest that a standard farm would have a number of slaves, at least one slave family. So where did all the slaves come from? Sure, some slaves actually paired up and started families, and obviously all children born by slave women automatically became slaves themselves it didn't matter if the father was a slave or a free man, maybe even the mother's owner. But the nativity among slave women was not enough to keep up with demand. Much like in other slave societies, slaves weren't all that keen on giving birth to children who would become slaves themselves. Instead, the main source for new slaves was raids. One of the most lucrative commodities during the Viking raids was living human beings. Slaves were captured during raids and brought to the slave market, like the one in Dublin, where they would be sold on. The risk for someone living in the British Isles or the Baltic region to be taken as a slave by Vikings was not insignificant. Thousands of slaves were taken and sold into slavery, either for the local market in Scandinavia or for other buyers around Europe and beyond. It was so common, in fact, that the word Westmen, that is, people from the British Isles, considered west of the Scandinavia by the Scandinavians themselves, was a synonym for slaves. But being captured by Vikings didn't necessarily mean that you'd spend the rest of your life in slavery, tilling the soil in some Scandinavian village at the very end of civilization. Rich and prominent people could be ransomed. They were taken aside and ransom notes were sent out. This was a common practice. A good bishop could fetch 15 kilos of silver in ransom, Buying the freedom of family members could be a costly business in some areas, and this ransom trade also made slave hunting a lucrative business for Vikings. It was sometimes basically kidnapping, where slaves were taken to be ransomed, and they were never planned to be brought back to Scandinavia or sold on for work needs. Poorer people, whose relatives couldn't pay ransom, could always be sold into slavery though. For instance, at the Dublin Slave Market. Before they could be sold, they were held on a small island off the coast, That way, the risk of anyone escaping was minimized. We even have at least one recorded slave rebellion in the Viking Age. The Lantnama book, the Book of Settlement from Iceland, relates a revolt among the Irish slaves who had been brought to Iceland to do the dirty work during the colonization of the previously uninhabited Ireland. Even though full-blown revolts were rare, the risk of slaves running away was something the Vikings were aware of. For that reason, born slaves were considered more trusted because they didn't try to run away as often as captured slaves. They also had higher status than caught and purchased slaves. Beyond the fact that born slaves didn't have memories of what it was like to be free, they usually grew up with the free children of the farm, and the social distance wasn't so great. When the free children grew up to take over the farm, they often gave their childhood slave friends key positions on the farms. The general conditions for the slaves varied and depended on their owners disposition and economic situation. If he was rich he could take better care of his property including his slaves and if he wasn't cruel he wouldn't hurt his slaves just for chits and giggles. To make sure one's slaves were properly clothed and fed meant they were healthier and could work harder. Also it reflected poorly on your household if your slaves were in bad condition just like it if it would if your horses and cows would be. Slaves who knew a trade, or had some special skill, usually had a better life than other slaves, for obvious reasons. Slaves could be bought and sold, but selling a captured slave was easier than a born slave. Selling a born slave was circumscribed with restrictions similar to those surrounding selling inherited land. Born slaves could be allowed to break new land or set up a farm on land belonging to their owners. They then had to give a portion of their proceeds to their owners and also had to work their owner's fields or do whatever else he demanded as regular slaves. Under certain circumstances, slaves could even buy their own freedom if they could save up money to do so. When slaves purchased their freedom or were otherwise freed by their owners, they had to be adopted into a free clan, usually their former owner's clan. You couldn't just be your own man in the very family or clan-centered Viking Age Scandinavian society. But let's get back to the action in Dublin. In the year 867, an Irish force burned Olaf's fortress near Dublin and killed 100 of his followers. They followed this up with a successful attack on Dublin itself in the same year. But this didn't break the Scandinavians. When Ivar and Olaf returned from their participation in the Great Heathen Army, that we'll talk about in a future episode, they continued to terrorize the Irish and plunder where they could. They were rather successful and amassed a great deal of loot this way. Before the end of 871, Olaf returned to Scotland to suppress an uprising among the local Scandinavians, possibly against his father, who might have been their king. During this time, roughly 871 to 872, Ivar continued to plunder Ireland together with Olaf's son, Aesteyn, But nothing lasts forever, not even a good raid. Eventually Ivar died and his death is recorded in the annals of Ulster under the year 873. The annals call Ivar king of the Norsemen of all Ireland and Britain, which almost certainly was an exaggeration. Olaf died soon after, around 874 or 875, during a protracted campaign against Constantine I of Scotland. These deaths ushered in three decades of uncertainty for the Scandinavian settlements in Ireland. Their two strong and charismatic leaders had died in quick succession. This was a society with no fixed rules of succession, and Ivan Olaf left a power vacuum many felt tempted to exploit. Internal power struggles between the different factions weakened the Scandinavians, and made it easier for the Irish to unite against them. During this period, Irish petty kings took control of many of the Scandinavian towns, most importantly Dublin itself, but also Cork, Limerick, Waterford and Wexford. The King of Leinster and the King of Brega launched a two-pronged attack on Dublin from the north and the south and drove the Viking leadership out of the city. The Vikings' defeat was comprehensive. They fled, leaving great numbers of their ships behind them, and escaped half-dead across the sea, as the no-doubt gleeful chronicler put it. Dublin was now in Irish hands and remained so for 15 years. Archaeological excavations in later years suggest that despite the dramatic entry in the chronicle about the Vikings fleeing half-dead, there wasn't a mass exodus of Scandinavians from Dublin when the town fell to the Irish. Presumably, it was only the ruling dynasty and their warriors who fled, and most Scandinavian farmers, traders and artisans may have remained under the jurisdiction of native Irish rulers. Nonetheless, the loss of Scandinavian control over Dublin is seen as the end of what's known as the first Viking Age in Ireland. But the Irish didn't manage to keep the Vikings out for long. Due to Irish infighting, what else, it didn't take long before the Vikings were back, with a vengeance. In the year 906, the Irish alliance broke down, and an intra-Irish war weakened them so much that in 914, the Vikings could force their way back in. Not only a weakened Ireland was the reason for their return, the Vikings in England were under pressure and on retreat. And uh, in 910, the Duchy of Normandy was established on the Channel Coast, effectively stopping further raiding in Francia. And don't worry, we'll talk plenty more about all of that in future episodes. So, in 914, the Vikings, now known as the Umer or House of Ivar, who claimed to be descendants of Ivar the King of Dublin, returned to Ireland marking the beginning of what's called the Second Viking Age in Ireland. Large numbers of Vikings started to show up on the Irish shores at this time, more than the weakened and disunited Irish defenders could handle. But that doesn't mean that they didn't try. In 917, the Irish suffered a heavy defeat in the Battle of Confe. The Viking triumph allowed their leader Sigtryg, supposedly the grandson of Ivar, to re-establish Scandinavian control over Dublin. Another chieftain, Ragnall left Ireland again in uh, 918 and became king of York, or Jorvik, as the Scandinavians called it. With Sigtryk in Dublin and Ragnall in Jorvik, a Dublin-Jorvik axis developed, which became important for both England and Ireland over the decades to come. Irish forces once again marched on Dublin in September 919. The O'Neills attacked, trying to eliminate the Viking threat once and for all, but on September 14th that year, Sigtryg met their forces at the Battle of Island Bridge, south of Dublin, and crushed the Irish. No less than six Irish petty kings fell in the battle, including the High King himself, belonging to the O'Neills. Scandinavian Dublin was saved, and the Irish petty kings were weakened and vulnerable to a counterattack. But instead of going on the offensive, Sigtryg left for Jorvik, when he received the news that Ragnall had died in 920. Instead of trying to become ruler of all of Ireland, Sigtryg became the ruler of Jorvik in 921. It would seem that Jorvik was more important to the Vikings, and Dublin was sometimes treated as a mere springboard to that ultimate prize. Sigtryg's kinsman, Guthrother, assumed control over Dublin. Just like so many other Vikings, Guthrother was active as a raider, plunderer and slaver. But there were still signs during his reign that something was changing in the Scandinavian outlook and worldview. During another raid at the monastery at Armagh in 921, for instance, the Irish chronicler noted that Guthredr spared the prayer houses and the sick from destruction, considerations never taken by the Vikings of the previous century. When Sigtryg died in 927, Guthredr left for Jorvik, trying to follow Sigtryg's career path and assume the kingship there, but he failed and returned to Dublin half a year later. In the meantime, though, the Vikings of Limerick had taken Dublin in his absence. Even though Guthreuther managed to retake the town, the struggle with Limerick continued well after his death in 934. He was succeeded by his son, Olaf, who inflicted a decisive defeat on Limerick in 937. The same year Olaf too abandoned Dublin and instead went to Northumbria and fought his way to the throne of Jorvik, which he conquered in 939. For the rest of the 10th century the scandinavian kings of dublin belonging to the dynasty of uymer were active participants in the power games played by the irish petty kings in a familiar pattern they would ally themselves with one petty king against another but ever so often the alliances would shift and former friends became foes and vice versa in the year 980 the king of dublin was a certain olaf sigtruksson that year He marched his forces north to attack the O'Neills, but the Vikings were defeated at the Battle of Tara, north of Dublin. The O'Neill king followed up the victory at Tara by marching on Dublin, forcing King Olaf to vacate the throne of Dublin in favour of his son, Järnkne, or irony in English. This really spelt the end of autonomous Scandinavian rule in Dublin, and Olaf Sigtrygson is considered the last of the U'emers to play any major role in Irish politics. The Scandinavians in Ireland would remain important in international trade and as mercenaries, but as an independent political force, the Vikings were spent. As a sign of how Gaelicized the Scandinavians of Dublin were at this point, their ousted king didn't go to some other Scandinavian stronghold in the British Isles or back to Scandinavia. Instead, and rather ironically, he took refuge in the monastery at Iona, the very place the previous Viking kings had devastated in brutal, albeit lucrative, raids. As this was going on among the Scandinavians, the Irish were actually on the cusp of overcoming their eternal political fractioning for the first time in well, forever. The man behind this development was the king of the southern Irish petty kingdom of Munster, Brian Beru. In the year 976, Brian had become king of Munster and quickly established himself as the most powerful ruler in southern Ireland, by raiding and clever alliance building. The Scandinavians in Dublin obviously perceived Brian as a threat, and as early as 982, they raided Munster to keep Brian in check. The next two decades saw more or less constant warfare between them, mostly with the petty kingdom of Leinster, Munster's northern neighbour, as the battleground. In the 990s, the Vikings managed to put a puppet king of their own on the throne of Leinster, but in late 999, Brian attacked and a few days after Christmas that year, he defeated a force of Vikings and Leinstermen. Brian continued north to punish the Scandinavians, and a few days after New Year's, in the year 1000, he attacked Dublin. The town didn't stand a chance, and King Sigtryg Silkbeard fled as Brian captured and pillaged the Scandinavian stronghold. Brian's and Munster's influence kept growing, and by the year 1002, all the other Irish petty kings had submitted to him. Brian Beru now claimed kingship over the whole of Ireland, but the key word here is claimed. There were still pockets of resistance in the north, and Brian knew that the kings that had submitted to him, including the O'Neill High King, would jump at any sign of weakness in order to rebel. Brian had to pacify the north on several occasions, and when a more general revolt among the petty kings of Ireland broke out in the year 1012, King Silkbeard in Dublin took his chance and joined the rebellion. A full-scale war was inevitable. Brian brought his army north in 1013 and camped outside Dublin from September until the end of that year. In the end, though, Dublin didn't fall this time. The Scandinavians had learned the lesson from the earlier sackings. They had strengthened the town's fortifications and they were far better prepared for a siege this time. After three miserably cold and wet months, Brian's troops admitted failure and lifted the siege at Christmas but King Sigtryg Silkbeard wasn't stupid he realized Brian Boru wasn't going to give up that easily so Sigtryg went overseas in search of viking support against this unprecedented irish threat sigtryg managed to enlist the help of the earl of orkney and brodir a famous warrior from the isle of man according to the far from reliable source niall saga sigtryg promised both men the kingship of Ireland, if they had defeated Brian Beru. The stage was now set for the showdown of all showdowns so far in Irish history. In April 1014, the Viking fleets of Orkney and the Isle of Man sailed into Dublin Harbour during Holy Week. They were too numerous to be housed in the town itself, so they set up camp north of Dublin. Brian mustered the army of Munster, which was joined by other Irish petty kings, and they all marched on Dublin. The battle stood at Clontarf, a stone's throw away from Dublin, on Good Friday, April 23rd, 1014. It would be one of the last major battles involving Vikings in Ireland. In Irish national propaganda and myth-making, the Battle of Clontarf has become a decisive clash between the good Irish Christians fighting for freedom against the evil heathen Vikings who had oppressed them for so long. Both Irish and Scandinavian sources depicted the Battle of Clontarf as a gathering both of this world and of the supernatural, including witches, goblins, and demons. A Viking poem portrays how chanting Valkyries decided who would live and who would die on the battlefield. But like so often is the case, reality is more complicated and far less populated with goblins and chanting Valkyries. For instance, Vikings fought on both sides in the Battle of Clontarf, both for Brian Boru and for the Scandinavian army opposing him. Similarly, there were Irish forces fighting both for and against Brian Boru. Brian, now in his 70s, actually didn't join his forces that good Friday morning when they set out to fight the Vikings. Instead, he stayed behind to pray. His son and designated heir was the commander of the Munster forces. Brian's 15-year-old grandson also participated in the battle, together with his father. Behind them were the other forces of Munster, Next came the forces of Connacht. To one side of them were Brian's Viking allies, and Irish allies were placed on the left flank. According to at least one source, the King of Meath, who was an ally of Brian's, had made an agreement with the men of Dublin that he would not attack them and they would not attack him. The front line of the Dublin Leinster forces were the foreign Vikings, led by Broder from the Isle of Man, the Earl of Orkney, Sigurd, and a man called Plate described as the bravest knight of all the foreigners. Behind them were the men of Dublin, and at the back came the Leinstermen. King Sigtrug Silkbeard remained in Dublin with enough men to defend it, should the battle go against them. He watched the battle from the walls with his wife, slain, who awkwardly enough was Brian Brewer's daughter. You can only begin to imagine what might have gone through her head at that moment. According to the sources, the battle opened at dawn, with plate taunting a Scottish ally of Brian. The two men marched out into the middle of the field and fought, and both died, according to the sources, with the sword of each through the heart of the other, and the hair of each in the clenched hand of the other. After that brave and romantic, but ultimately utterly pointless interlude, the battle proper got underway. It is described, by the admittedly not particularly reliable sources, as remarkably loud and bloody. The men of Connacht, fought the men of Dublin, and the fighting was so fierce that only 100 Connacht men and 20 Dublin men survived. The last casualties occurred at the bridge over the river Tolka, on the road back to Dublin. Brian's son and the men under his command took on the foreign Vikings, and according to the same unreliable sources, he himself killed 100 of the enemy, 50 with the sword in his right hand and 50 with the sword in his left. The battle lasted all day. Eventually, the Dublin-Leinster forces broke, and some withdrew towards their ships, while others fled to a nearby wood. However, the tide had come in, cutting off the passage to the wood, but also carrying off the Viking ships. With no way out, they were killed in large numbers, many of them by drowning. At this moment of triumph, Brian's grandson pursued the enemy into the sea, but was hit by a wave and drowned. Brian's son killed Sigurd, the Earl of Orkney, but shortly afterwards, he himself was also killed. That meant that two generations of successors to Brian Beru fell in the battle. Brian himself was in his tent praying when Brodyr, the famous warrior from the Isle of Man, found him by chance. Broder and his retinue were trying to escape back to the relative safely of Dublin when they stumbled upon the elderly Irish king's camp. Broder killed Brian before being killed himself shortly afterward. From a military perspective, the battle was a resounding success for the Munster forces. They completely crushed the Viking enemy, and Dublin was now practically defenseless. But it was a pyrrhic victory. Not only had the legendary king Brian been slain, but his designated heir and his son had died too. The Munster army emerged from the battle demoralized and leaderless. Brian's body was brought to the monastery at Armagh, accompanied by the traditional head of the church in Ireland. At Armagh, he was interred after 12 days of mourning. Along with Brian were the body of his son and the heads of Brian's nephew and one of the petty kings who had fought on Brian's side. The Munster forces never did capture Dublin. Instead, under the leadership of a younger son of Brian's, they started their march back home. On the way back, they were constantly harassed and attacked by previously subjugated rivals, who now saw their chance to get revenge at the hated Munster occupiers. Despite what nationalist Irish historians would have you think, the Battle of Clontarf was not a struggle between the Irish and the Vikings for the sovereignty of Ireland. Neither was it a great national victory which broke the power of the Scandinavians forever. I mean, long before Clontarf, they had become a minor political force in Irish affairs. In fact, more than anything, Clontarf was part of the internal struggle between Munster and its Irish rivals, a struggle in which the Scandinavians played an important, but ultimately secondary, role. Despite the defeat at Clontarf, Sigtryg Silkbeard remained king of Dublin until 1036, and was apparently secure enough in his position to go on a pilgrimage to Rome in 1028. However, in 1052, the king of Leinster, the former ally of the Scandinavians, captured Dublin and asserted Irish overlordship over the Scandinavians in Ireland. Unlike Milsio in 980 or Brian Boru in 999, he wasn't content with just looting the town and expelling its ruler. In an unprecedented move, he assumed the kingship of the foreigners himself. Even though the Scandinavians lost all political control over Irish lands and affairs, many Scandinavians remained in Ireland, after several generations of coexistence and intermarriage, a group of mixed Irish and Scandinavian ethnic background had emerged, often called either Norse Gaels or Hiberno Norse. They didn't know any other home than Ireland, and their culture was a mix of Celtic and Scandinavian elements. The Hiberno Norse often called themselves Ostman, meaning Eastman, a name preserved in a corrupted form in the Dublin area known as Oxmantown, north of the River Liffey, which comes from Ostmanatun or homestead of the Nor- of the Eastman in the Old Norse language of the Vikings. In contrast, they call the Irish Vestmen, as I mentioned earlier, a term synonymous with slave in other parts of the Scandinavian cultural sphere. A dialect of Old Norse was spoken by the Haberno Norse and their descendants until the 13th century. Scandinavian influence also shows in the Norse-derived names of many Irish place names, and in DNA evidence, in some residents, of these coastal cities to this day. Next time, we'll leave Ireland and instead of delve into Scandinavian myth and literature. We'll talk about the legend of Ragnar Lothbrok, chronicling the adventures of everyone's favorite viking and his famous sons. It's actually not as random as it might seem. The legend of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons is actually a neat segue from the Scandinavians in Ireland on the one hand, As I mentioned earlier, Ivar, king of Dublin and founder of the Uymer dynasty, was believed to have been one of the Ragnarsons. and on the other, Viking exploits in other parts of Western Europe, primarily in France and England. I hope you'll join us then.